We can solve every business problem with mergers and acquisitions. You don't have to have the thing that solves the problems that you currently are facing today. Someone else has it. After that deal, I thought, why the hell do I do anything other than mergers and acquisitions? Why don't I just acquire to solve every problem? Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Scaling Fastlane podcast. I'm your host, Valerie Booth, and in this episode, we're honored to have serial business investor, Peter Lang, who will be sharing his insights into the art of scaling and solving any business problem through mergers and acquisitions. But before we get started, let me give you an overview of what to expect from the podcast. Every week, we will bring you inspiring discussions from industry experts, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who will share their strategies for overcoming challenges and driving exponential business growth. From insider tips on mergers and acquisitions to deep dives into innovative business practices, the Scaling Fast Lane is your ultimate resource for navigating the fast-paced world of scaling a digital agency. New episodes release every Wednesday morning, so make sure to tune in and get a fresh dose of inspiration and practical insight to start your day. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode where Peter Lang will reveal keys to achieving geometric growth through mergers and acquisitions. Enjoy. I get called the person who likes to solve any business problem with mergers and acquisitions, and rightfully so, because I did my first deal in seven days. Now, it was a relatively small acquisition compared to what we do now. But in that one deal, I added a year's worth of revenue and resources I didn't have. At the time, we had consistent annual growth. We were growing 20% year over year. How many have consistent growth year over year? 20%, 10%, 15%, somewhere you feel very comfortable with. I didn't have to put in any money up front. I also came with $200,000 of working capital cash to infuse into the business. That was a Thursday. Not bad for a Thursday night, seven days work. Now, after that deal, I thought, why the hell do I do anything other than mergers and acquisitions? Why don't I just acquire to solve every problem? Because I took years off of what I had been building within the company. And hang on, I don't have to learn every new thing. I don't have to go to every conference. I don't have to go to events like this and expand my capabilities and be the CEO who can do every job. I can find other people who want to do that and acquire them. How many of you are expanding your service offerings right now to meet with the ever-changing Technology evolution. How many of you are thinking about it? It's great. Learning to a new category of business, learning a new category of services, standardizing the service deliverables so you can sell it confidently. You don't have to spend years learning new things, constantly evolving. How many of you use your personal brands to generate new business and influence the market? Wait, I don't have to? build my reputation, I don't have to build my personal brand, I can acquire someone who does. And this was a paradigm shift. In that moment, I made a life-changing decision. I'm not doing anything other than M&A. That's the only way to grow a company. And when I surveyed the room, we don't have a lot of people doing deals. Not by trying to learn every single new thing, not by trying to go to networking events and interact, not by expanding my social influence, trying to figure out how to post online when I do not have the disposition of someone who likes to post online. Not by trying to influence people to build a network or community, but by acquiring that which I don't have to solve every business problem that exists. Not by taking two steps forward and one step back year over year, not by having to pivot to every little economic uncertainty, every news headline that says we're going into recession, soft landing, major trough, transformation, industry is going to be disrupted by AI. No, don't have to consider all that. Don't not be burdened with that uncertainty because you have people that you can acquire who care about that. And you have a choice. You have a choice to be the person who has to pivot at a whim or build a community of people you've acquired who care for you. 
we can solve every business problem with mergers and acquisitions. It's my superpower, and it can be yours. Now you think about how you scale. How many of you are north of 5 million? You probably want to get to 10 million. 20 million, you want to double in size and do it again? How many of you have done that every year for the last three years? Select group, right? How do we do it without all the work that gets put into it? Was it easy? Then do it again, then do it again, and then do it again year over year. Now I made eight deals in 18 months. And during COVID, Everyone remembers that long time period forgotten, which is a blanket period in our years. I ask people, what, how's the last few years been for you? And they go, for the last five years, and then they forget COVID year. We were all transported for a period of time where that year doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in your business financials, if you're trying to sell. It doesn't exist in your mind when it comes to the struggles, because it was just an anomaly. But during COVID, many of you as industry leaders or as business leaders with your staff, you had to be the strong ones who here hosted a town hall, got their team together, and told them, I'm not shutting the lights off. I'm not going away. I'm here for you. We're going to try to figure it out, even though you're all terrified, because everyone didn't know what was going on. It's the burden that we have. I was in the same boat. And I have some team members who joined me shortly after. And I made a statement, which is, we are not going to reduce. We're not going to cut staff. We're going to go to the market and we're going to acquire businesses. We're going to fortify with the things we need that we don't have to sustain this period of time. And that's a big statement when you're as scared as they are. Within a 90-day period of time, I had done three transactions. I brought in things I didn't have, brought in resources team, expanded the service capability, and brought in people to who right now are with me to this day. And who can say that they get that from organic hiring very frequently? The people you do deals with, you have a different kind of bond with. A transaction connects you beyond just, I hired you and you're helping me grow this business, and you potentially will leave me. Now, why was that? Because we can solve any business problem with mergers and acquisitions. You have M&A in your company, and this is called programmatic M&A, where you're buying at a frequency greater than two to three businesses a year. How do you value that sort of company? Tom pitched that he bought a company for, what, 2.5x cash flow, right? How do you value a company that buys other companies every year and grows not by just organic and incremental growth, but by 30%, 40%, by adding top line revenue year after year. Many of you know that business buying exists. How many of you read a business buying book? Buy, then build. Harvard Business Review, how to buy a small business. There's a lot of ways to learn how to buy companies. But when your company buys as a function of its operating system, when you go to sell your business, and you sell the ability to do M&A with it, you get the highest possible value for it. You can expand your sales team. Who here has hired really great salespeople and you love how much they're converting new business and you're hitting all your targets? I have the same problem. Because once you set your goals to acquire new companies, you think, how can I solve those types of problems with things that I don't have versus what I do have? And most of you approach solving all your business operational needs by looking around the room at the people you have, the cash you have, the resources, the capabilities, and thinking, how do I organize what I have to fix the problems of today? We're looking at M&A as a paradigm shift. You don't have to have the thing that solves the problems that you currently are facing today. Someone else has it. How long is it going to take? Maybe two years instead of 20? Six months versus 24? Three weeks instead of six months? How fast you move and do deals shows typically me how serious you are in actually scaling. 
It is the number one proven and documented with great evidence of terrible outcomes and success to grow and move up the value chain, period. If you commit to it, how fast it is before you do your first deal. It's like when someone says, I want to get healthy, and they st still eat the same foods, right? You know what it takes to dramatically alter your current state, and you potentially choose not to take your own advice or dip or go deep into the knowledge. Now, I have a five-step process that we follow. <coughs> and it's very interesting to consider that this came to development when I was on sabbatical. How many of you have taken a sabbatical away from your business? Longer than 90 days. What's the longest vacation we can claim in this room right now? And the business operated smoothly without you. Anyone want to throw out at some periods? Two weeks. Two weeks? Four weeks. Four weeks? One month. Yes. One month? And no check-in. <laughs> the number one discount factor associated with a small to mid-sized enterprise, meaning your small businesses that you operate, sub 10 million, really sub 30 million enterprise value, is the fact that the owners who operate, the executive team, can't leave the business for more than a few weeks. That's where the risks lie in businesses. I was on sabbatical for eight months. And what's interesting, I had hired a VP of sales to professionalize that company, because I was the person selling. Bring in sales team, hire them. How many of you hired salespeople and they haven't worked out before? Yeah, and then you replace them. You kind of lose faith in your ability to hire salespeople who can maybe convert like you can convert. And you think, why can't they sell like I can? Oh, it's because I'm the founder. People want to talk to the owners and the founders. That's why they move forward with our company. No, you're terrible at sales. They're building companies that have sales teams, and I was too. Brought in a 72-year-old VP of sales to mature my sales organization and give us the resources. And I left on sabbatical, gave them the company to run. And when I came back, I realized they weren't as good as I was. <laughs> company did fine, but it didn't hit the kind of ambitious targets that I was constantly hitting. And you lose a little bit of confidence in your ability to maybe solve that problem. And he did okay, but I failed to meet my goals. This problem, I realized, could only be solved by M&A. So phase one of doing deals is to find. To solve my problem, I needed to find a company that we could acquire that had someone to fill the need that I had. And it was a very simple deal thesis. I'm terrible at sales, or at least building sales and hiring salespeople. So I was introduced to an agency that had two partners. Joy handled sales. And for this first time ever, I'm going to disclose, Tommy handled sales. I always change it because Tommy's not in the room. Tommy handled sales. He has a business partner. And that business partner was the service side. Tommy can sell. And it doesn't even feel like selling. Because oftentimes when we say sales, we think car salesman, we think kind of slimy, we think kind of networking, transactional. And he just had this charismatic, very simple, straightforward way of getting people to do what he wanted them to do. He also could make promises that his business partner could back up. But I was introduced to Tommy by a shared lawyer. Law firms are a great place. When you tell them you're acquisitive and you want to do deals, you go to your lawyer. They can introduce you to people because they can help connect it. Step two, evaluate. Now, who's taken my, into my solo course or have completed it because you're in the boardroom? It's about 28 hours. Intimately with me sharing a video screen because I recorded it during COVID times. And uh, I talk about a process where we ask people how many hats you're wearing as owners. Right? Today we're wearing our sales hat and our executive hat. Right? We're trying to think, how can we solve a sales problem? As an executive, I'm building 
uh, a forecast for my business I'd like to hit. So I asked Tommy, who went through the audit. Who's seen our audit before? 126 questions. Those of you who have seen it, he was interviewed all the questions. And I went through and said, how many hats do you wear? And one of the things uh, he said is five. It's the accounting, the finance, HR. Uh, I sell, but then get pulled back into client engagements because I kind of reset and then upsell if they weren't happy with something. How many of you feel like you're wearing five hats or more in running your business? And then you're putting on a hat, dealing with a thing, changing the hat, dealing with the next thing over and over again. You never have one single day where you're one position in your company. And then I asked Tommy, what if you only sold? You didn't get pulled back into client service. What if you just sold? He said, I'd crush it. I'd make it rain. So what if you could sell more things than what you're just currently selling? Higher value MRR engagements, because they were primarily selling projects and then ongoing support, because they were a full stack development company. What if you could sell a bunch of other things? Because that'd make it a lot easier, because then I have more things to sell to them, obviously. So in this stage, you have to evaluate what's the opportunity and how does it fit within your need. And so far, you need to identify that you have a good prospect to potentially do a deal with. Phase three is structure. It's very challenging uh, for many people to figure out how to structure deals, because they often just go with what I call lazy deal making. And lazy deal making is saying, hmm, how much money are they going to want? And how much money do I have? OK, based on those things, let's figure out a way to structure this to move forward. Rather than saying, what are the things stopping the company that you want to buy from being as good as you know they can be? And what's stopping you from investing in that solution yourself if you failed previously? Ultimately, you have to buy a company, and the owner has to be bought in to what you're building together. I mentioned that doing a deal together bonds people. Tommy's been on a ride with me since 2020. Tony, is he over there? Has, no, Tony's not. He's been on a ride with me since 2020. And you want people who can ride with you during challenging times of expansion and opportunity. And it's interesting. Those people are typically ones who would do deals with you. So I probably knew the deal that I wanted to pitch Tommy about two weeks after getting to know him. But what did you tell me? I don't want to do, do a deal. How many of you would have stopped if someone said, I don't want to do a deal? We got to know each other. We went through the process. We explained how we did things. He, he shared openly how they did things, the challenges faced by both of us. And we got to know each other personally, too. Because you do a deal, good deals, and good deal outcomes with people who have the same core values as you do, cultural alignment, and to a degree, the same ambition. Not identical, but the ambition to take things further with things they don't have but would like to have. That's how you start getting into how do you structure this deal. Once we structured that deal, we figured out how that business would fit, the narrative behind that. We, we spent a lot of time together throughout that process saying, what could we sell? What, what's the service? What's the value? What's the charge? Like, the number one thing. And I'm going to ask you this very candidly and very bluntly. If we acquired you today, your agencies, what would be the first thing you think I would change? Operations. Operations. Professionalize the company, right? You actually know the things that you should be doing right now. If you think that's the first thing that I would do if I acquired you, it's probably one of the first things you should be doing right now. Tom says a wonderful statement. You have to ask the right question. And the question I always recommend is as someone who wants to be acquisitive, as someone who wants to buy, evaluate your current business as if you were to buy it or someone else would. The M&A process and solving all business problems with M&A is also the key to selling businesses and having the right perspective of how you can grow beyond your current limitations of what you think is available to you now. 
Now, how you close a deal? Well, closing a deal sounds like you can leave it to the attorneys, but ultimately it's you sitting down together at a table and walking through how the deal could potentially work. And it's not you pitching. It's not you this getting a rapid offer and saying, here's my offer, take it or leave it, let's go. It's sitting down with the other company and saying, how can we figure out how to make a deal work? Especially when they tell you, I'm not doing a deal, almost every week. <laughs> it's important, and Tommy could probably give you, he's glad he can give you insights of how that process was, but it felt like he was a part of the process with me. It wasn't me coming to acquire him, it was how do we figure out how to do something together? And a lot of people hear how to pitch deals, how to close deals, as I gotta figure out their value, I gotta give them an LOI, maybe they'll accept the LOI, maybe they'll agree to my exclusivity terms, but how do I know they're very timid. It's a collaborative process every single time to do a deal. It's a human to human interaction, which you can do through Zoom. We didn't meet till after we closed. So it happens when you acquire a company during COVID. Planes weren't really available to make it work for us. Finally, phase five is integrate. This is where a lot of agencies or a lot of businesses in general are intimidated to do a deal. Because it's like dating. Closes marriage, right? The wedding, kicking off marriage. Integrate is how do we build a family together? And a lot of people don't get into that stage of life because it's really fun evaluating and structuring deals all the time versus having to commit and then build and integrate your two sides of the families and your two personalities. And that's the way to think about integration. This process can take a few months, can even take a year, but it's a little easier if you've done your due diligence. The tip I'm going to give you, it's not in this presentation at all, is due diligence is actually preliminary integration planning. People go, well, to do a deal, I have to do due diligence, obviously. To do a deal and to do due diligence, you have to plan for what you're doing after the deal. That's why it's so collaborative. And you're collecting information that allows you to make a detailed plan of what we're going to do 30, 60, 90 days after close. It took six months to integrate. I would say, right? And then probably by shortly after six months, Tommy was leading sales. Now, he's been the outperforming salesperson that we've ever had consistently, year over year. He's been adapted to various selling types, RFP, project-based, MRR, outbound sales, inbound sales, digital uh, asset creation, content creative. As we acquired more people, he said, okay, well, now I have a new service set potentially we can expand to. You have to have someone who can be flexible, who can be progressive, doesn't see M&A as a disruptive force, as a way of giving us something we don't have. Also, it's very helpful, he knew that I was doing deals. And he knew that my primary focus was doing deals, so he knew I was bringing either good things or troubling things that would need help figuring out. Because when you say all I'm doing is deals, your team knows you're doing deals, they are prepared for it. You show up one day with just your first acquisition, say, hey, let's figure out how to integrate this thing. They'll go, oh goodness, they went to some conference. They learned a new thing, they read a book, and now they're implementing this thing. They've done it again over and over. They go away for a few days, they're out of the office, we don't get to hear from them, and then we have a new thing we're deploying this quarter or this year. You have to make it your full-time commitment. Because once we integrated, problem solved. And for me to focus purely on doing deals, I needed that problem solved. Now the M&A process can feel a little overwhelming, and that's normal, but it's not something you're taught when you start a business. Any of you actually went to entrepreneurship in school? Oh, we actually have some actual academic entrepreneurship, right? Where you, you learn to start businesses. How many of you studied business? Good, about a little close to half the room. 
So the rest of you are accidental business owners. First company, still in? Or how many of you are on the second company? All right. You look around the room and say, there's, there's levels to this. No one teaches you, if you're not from corporate finance, how to do deals. All of you have to learn it by doing deals. I'll give you another tip that's not in this presentation. Five. Five is the minimum number for you not to suck. Five deals. Once you've done five, you are clear for takeoff. Your first deal will be terrible. That's why you only target 30% your employee count, so it doesn't dilute your culture and your influence. Even if you didn't know that number, that's the number. It's 30% your enterprise value if you're you know, significantly larger, 30% your employee count if you want to keep the culture and adapt them to you. So take your current employee account and say, hmm, 30% are numbers. Oh, that's my first deal. Simple enough. Simple criteria. Because then you can fail safely. You can do your first deal and not have to succeed to this grand vision. Many of you don't know this because you have to learn it. It's another thing to learn. But this is the thing that if you learn, you do not have to learn how AI is going to disrupt agencies. Now, how far can we take this? Well, the M&A process is not something you learn to do once. It's not like your first marathon, and then you go, I'm not doing a marathon again. It's something that you are committed to doing over and over again. 80% of your time as a minimum of allocation within your business in order to do consistent deals, one to three deals a year, 80% of your time. But once you learn the M&A process, you can do it over and over and over again. Now I have a student who consumed my 27, at the time it was probably 25, 25 hours of my course and did his first deal within two weeks. Then he did two other deals within 90 days. Oh, shit. <laughs> and he spent the next 12 months integrating them. And now he's about to do it again. It's kind of like trauma. You've got to get over five. He's got to get over the five count for him to feel like I've got a handle on this. Because doing deals are easy, they are seductive, and they're much more fun than running your boring ass businesses. It is. How many of you felt like you love every aspect of what you do in your job? A good percentage of your business is boring. That's the things that make it work. If you don't run a boring business, you don't have a business that has value. Boring businesses are easily transferred to someone else. That's how you exit for the highest multiple. But you're entrepreneurs. Boring sucks. Some of the bottlenecks out there create problems for their companies to solve. And they don't know they're doing it. How many of you have ever manufactured a problem for your team to solve that's outside their current day-to-day -day jobs? Like adding a garden to the office. That garden's looking great, Jeff, by the way. Now, once you learn how far will you go, how far can you go? You may be thinking M&As, the big corporations, my small company. Hopefully, Tom debunked this for you. You hear about Heinz, Kraft, AT&T, Time Warner, Discovery. And then you hear about WPP and Ogilvy. WPP was highlighted. Another little tidbit I want to make sure you, everyone takes away here is Beyond the Hockey Stick. Has anyone read that book, The Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick? Strategy Behind the Hockey Stick is a McKinsey publication. It deals with uh, a data set of you know, decades. And they're looking over the course of a decade, because only your business is truly a business if it sustains for longer than a decade. Does it go through the true maturity life cycle? The only way to go from the lower quartile of business performance to the top right corner of performance is by programmatic M&A. Every company that over a 10-year period of time went from being the new player to the biggest player, all of them do programmatic M&A. It's a minimum of one to two deals a year. Three is really the target. And how do you value companies that do deals to grow and expand services? Apple does a deal a day. Do you, do you all know that? A deal a day. It's not announced. Any ideas of who they're buying? Small. 
small, tiny developers who have built some level of code that's unique, they go buy them real quick, buy them real quick, buy them real quick, buy them, buy them, buy them, buy them. They don't just recruit people out of university who are geniuses who can build and code. They do transactions every day. Now, the reason why we know about these deals is because they're published in media outlets. And the big corporations announce their transactions. Why? Because they get a bump up in value. Joe Rogan is a good example of this, right? Why did Spotify pay so damn much for Joe Rogan podcasts? Because the share price, because it's traded in Canada, the share price of Spotify shot up. Billions for a few hundred million around that of investment. Immediately, the media promotion of the transaction gives great confidence of strength. Many service businesses go, well, I don't want to announce that I did a deal because clients are going to, what are clients going to think? I'm changing, I'm evolving. Every single time you announce that you do deals to expand what you can provide the market, you increase in value and the market sees that increase in value every single time. Even though a good percentage of deals don't work out. Now there's close to 80% of the deals, almost 90, uh, we never hear about. They're called mergers. Everyone always announces the big acquisitions, the big exits. But the vast majority of deals are between two individuals, two companies, who just want to be a little bit bigger together and decide to merge. There's not a big exchange of cash, right? It's bigger together. It's stock swapping. But mergers are the vast majority of transactions in the entire M&A space. You just don't get to hear about them. There's no fancy PR campaign. There's no big announcement. You only hear about the big mergers. But small businesses all the time have a neighbor, have a business that they're a part of Vistage with, Traction Evo, and they just said, you and I just get along really well. And you have things that I don't have. How about we merge? They don't say, how about I, we do M&A? How about I acquire you? They say, how about we merge? How about we join forces? And those who are timid call it joint ventures and keep an arm's distance, length from each other. But the people who are serious commit. They close. You can do this. You can find companies that solve any of your business problems. You just need to learn how. And that's what we do. That's what I've spent a good portion of my time focusing on. Doing deals is probably the highest uh, contribution that I have. But one thing that has made me better at doing deals is helping others. Imagine for a moment you do your five deals. But you did five deals with another person who did their own five deals. How many of you are acquisitive in this room? Maybe the number will go up slightly as I go through this. If you just have a, someone you're now connected with who's as acquisitive as you are, and you can knowledge share your deals, instead of the life learning deal lessons you get from your five transactions, you get Jeff's five transactions. You get Mark's five transactions. You get Ellen's 20 transactions. It's very important not to look at this as an isolated activity that you're focused on and on a journey solo to learn. This is what we teach. We evaluate deals every single day. Learning how to solve any, everyone agrees, we can solve any business problem with mergers and acquisitions means you have the ability to do multiple deals. Now, you may have concerns about M&A, rightfully so. You may think the integration would fail and it'd blow up your companies and dilute your culture, or you'll accomplish some great problem-solving solution. The probability of both of those things happening is high if you don't learn how to do it. Now, what happens when you align acquisitions with organic growth? You have one of the most powerful mechanisms you've ever been able to distill and then apply to your business. And if you use M&A to increase the value of the things you buy, you've hit a whole new level. What if I bought a performance paid media agency? What do you think is the first thing I'm going to do? I asked you all this question. right? And you said, 
Get the bottleneck out of the way. Operations. What is the first thing I'm going to do if I buy your agency? I'm going to buy another agency just like it to solve the problem within the company. Why would we deploy? Why would we just give up M&A immediately? The first thing I do, constantly. You want to expand your network, your capabilities, you just go out and acquire another one after. Oftentimes people think, oh, you're going to buy my business, you're going to work on my sales team, you're going to maybe put some capital in the business. If the fastest way to growth is through mergers and acquisitions, after I buy you, I'm buying another you that solves some problems you have been unable to solve. And then the next company you, you buy, you buy another one just like it. It's not buying five of your own. It's buying the first one, buying its next one, its next one, its next one, its next one. People often have that backwards. They think, I'm just doing five transactions. Who here has a content marketing agency or video production? Look at the common thread there. Video production, video production, video production, video production. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense if I end up acquiring a video production company to expand its studio resources, its creative and talent resources by getting another company that's culturally aligned and can do it immediately? This is a great question. Uh, the question is, are we solving the same problem or do they have different problems, like dental offices? A great example would be Ellen's number one problem is talent, most likely, and production. How about lead generation? Trend, lead generation a problem for you? No. But production, yeah, common, common pain point, right? But not lead generation. So Ellen could acquire Trenton, solve her lead generation. Now they both share a production issue, but they've, through the joint production resources, kind of made it work temporarily. Then they go after another one. Why would you want to organically, from your balance sheet, expand and try to solve that problem when you can just go acquire someone else's production team? So it's interesting to think that your companies of similar caliber and services have different priority problems. And that's why you do the first, then the second one, the third, and that feeds the rest. You have to create an M&A engine for growth for your acquisitions. In doing a transaction, and from the people who take my course, they say things like, I'm not sure how to go through due, the due diligence process. I'm not sure how to find a, a, a not deal-killing attorney or an accountant who's not going to just point out all the mistakes of why I shouldn't do this thing. And I get it. It's awkward. It's vulnerable. Uh, it requires a lot from you to do deals. You may be thinking, how much do I pay myself? What am I going to be capable of doing through this? And it also could be awkward to talk about your baby when it's your business and you've put your blood, sweat, and years into building it. And now you have to be vulnerable. You, the other party has to share all of the skeletons in the closet. It's tough because it's like dating. You have to talk about that time you almost missed payroll, the things you don't open up to other people, maybe your business partners as you've grown, the things that you carry as a mental burden of stress, uncertainty, that you do not demonstrate to the rest of your team who's trusting you to employ them, take care of their families. To do a deal with someone else is to be that vulnerable with them. Let's talk about lifestyle businesses. Lifestyle businesses are feeding your desired lifestyle. If you can't take 60%, 50%, 80% of your time and allocate it to something else, you do not own the business. Everyone's heard this before. You work for your business, right? A performance business is different. It's rapidly scaling. Its strategy is growth. And if I already said, in general, the vast majority of scaling organizations have M&A and organic and incremental. They do, period, and you don't. You are flying a plane with one engine. Now, I've done the lifestyle business thing. I went to Bali. Anyone's done the Bali thing? 
And it's fine. There's nothing wrong with having. This isn't a judgment. This isn't a criticism. You can have a lifestyle business. But it's when the people who have lifestyle business have performance business expectations. And often, you all, as entrepreneurs, like starting things. So you think, where I'm at now, and I want to go get new revenue, and I want to add 2.5, it'd be much easier for me to do it through organic. You're beginning here. You got to begin at the end. In five to 10 years, I want to be 10x my current size. Can I do that purely through organic sales? What's going to increase the probability of that? You must begin at the end to do deals. Why? Because the people who do deals with you are not bought into the current problem solve of today. It's the problem solve of how it impacts where you're going. And oftentimes, the people who don't start today is because they have no five-year or 10-year commitment that they've stated out loud and they're working towards periodically. If you, what's the biggest company we have in here? We have 17, is Jeff? 17. Anyone bigger than 17? You got 20? Anyone else? If we wanted to double Jeff every year for the next five years, how big is he going to be? That's tough math for some people because doubling is Yeah. Can you get there organically? Can you get there through traditional sales? No. If he wanted to maximize his, his exit, he wants the highest possible value, you have EBITDA targets. If you're not above 5 million in EBITDA, you're not in the next category of multiples applied to that. If you're not above 10 million in EBITDA, you're not in the next category of multiples and buyers. When we start at the end, we know who bought us. We know who we sold to, and we know for how much. And then we just work backwards and say, what do I need to do for them to buy me for this multiple, and what do I need to look like? The vast majority of entrepreneurs start things. They don't start with the end. Now, we're evaluating the things. We all could be deal makers. This sounds really good, Peter. But the primary component of your success is due diligence. And due diligence has a very simple thing. It's called the story, the narrative, and the numbers. Narrative and numbers. All deals have simple narratives. The simple story that Tommy and I had was I have a sales problem. If Tommy only focuses on sales and we do this deal, he gets to focus on sales and he'll solve this problem. That was the minimum criteria for the deal thesis to be successful. And then we worked out the numbers supported that. But that was the minimum. Far too often we're thinking, I need 2.5 million in new revenue. Right? Or we're thinking numbers first, and it makes the narrative very hard. Simple narratives means you do deals. Complicated narratives, too complex numbers, you don't do deals. Now, has anyone seen the three Ps before? The three Ps are similar to how this question was asked. It's a simple analysis framework that says, um, is it possible? Simply put, is a deal possible or is it impossible? Does everybody here now believe doing a deal is possible? It's not impossible for you? The second P is plausible. Now you read to kind of find your focus. You need evidence to support that it's plausible. And that's what I'm trying to give you today, and that's what we're going to try to give you throughout the next few days. The third P is the most critical. It's, is it probable? I've mentioned that people have taken my course and learned how to do M&A, and that's increased their probability of doing deals. Because that is a percentage based upon an expected outcome. And nothing will mangle doing M&A than uh, bad facts. So once you have, is it possible, is it plausible, is it probable, you've gone, you believe you can do it, it's not impossible. You now have enough evidence to support that other people have done it, so you could potentially do it. And then you start figuring out what's your probability of actually doing it yourself. All deals are messy. All deals are complex because we make them complex. Due diligence shows things you didn't expect. And if you know it's supposed to be messy, you know it's supposed to be collaborative, you're, 
probability of closing that deal is going to go much higher than thinking it's supposed to be all easy or something you read in a book. And the biggest difference between learning and studying M&A, the, the biggest one, is doing a deal. Flat out. There's a lot of people who learn to do business buying, like they do with real estate, like they do with the stock market, like they do with other investment vehicles, but they yet to do a deal. The fastest you can do a deal increases your probability of having positive outcomes from doing deals. I was very fortunate. I kind of did a deal. I brought on two business partners to complete problems that I had. Felix, it's nice to have a scaling partner, isn't it? And we're in the process, probably say this, of acquiring two Y3X. Tom, I needed someone who could build the roadmap from the future and work it back, beginning with the end. Oftentimes, people don't do deals because they don't want to give up a piece of their company. They're worried about exchanging. You actually have, by owning a company, something you can exchange. It's called the fair exchange of value. Yeah, you give up things to bring on people who will help you get to where you want to go, especially when you know where you want to be. I did not want to build an aggregation model for the first time and go to market. Yay. A lot of confidence in my probability, right? I brought in someone who had the playbook, the templates, everything we needed to just do it day one. Those are deals that are negotiated. And I'm very fortunate to have operators. In what we're building in our ecosystem, we're your operational support. You need partners, and that's what we're hoping to create in this ecosystem with everyone who's here. Because if you have evidence by the person sitting across from you or from us that you can do it, then we believe in you. You've now learned. You've now gone into the probability category. You're going to hit your goal. And when I partnered with Tom and Felix, they said one thing. At this stage of my life and in my career, I care a lot about impact. Thankfully, I'm younger than them. And I care about doing deals. So we created a mechanism for them to do impact and a way for me to do more deals. Right? You find people who allow you to do the things that you want to focus on doing. Now, I see some of, there's still some faces in here. Peter, it's easy for you. You're some kingpin fanatic, always wanted to do deals since you were in high school. This is baked into your whole persona and personality. And it's true. I've been studying M&A for a long time, formally, as well as uh, through my own trial and error of transactions. I even sold my own company to myself, interestingly enough. Um, and I'll be very blunt, my wife does not negotiate well with me. Uh, they also call me the professor, because the way I do deals is I'm never surprised. So I'm going to give you another very important tip as we're getting closer and closer to me wrapping up, is the thing that also does you in is you're surprised at what you find. Your job, just like being the leader who's calm in front of your employees, is to be the calm person doing the deal. The person's trusting you. You have to educate them. The vast majority of doing a deal is educating someone to the reality. Because they will Google online, what's the value of my business? They go, 10x, 10x cash flow. Yeah, how much see EBITDA in cash flow? We're about 500,000 in EBITDA, yeah. And we're thinking that 10x is what the market says for this. And they Google, they get brokers, they get representation, and they're not accurate. So your job is to sit down with them in a collaborative way and educate them based off the information you've learned here and what you've learned about doing deals. Realizing that your job is to be slightly far ahead of them, but you're, it's fine to do your first deal together, your second deal. Once you have this entire process figured out, you'll be able to go beyond the imagery of Wolf of Wall Street, deal makers, salespeople, into empathetic, ambitious, and scalable companies. I think Tom is gifting you with something that's unique, a financial model. So when I talked about building from the end and designing how you're going to get there, Tom's giving you that today. And those who were with us before, we've walked you through that. But now we have the spreadsheet. 
you're gonna get some of the specific tools to build a version of what we've built and how we do deals and how we calculate that exit value in five years so you can work backwards and not get caught up with what's the deal I'm doing first. More how many deals and what kind of deals do I need to hit that end goal. The brands in your industry typically all have M&A and you don't. We need to shift that. I want to give you one more little hint as I'm wrapping because this is a very valuable tool. Say you can't give 80% of your time to doing deals. Couldn't you acquire someone who can spend 80% of their time doing deals? Tony, head of M&A. Tony was a deal that came in. He said, I'm a deal maker, I'm a closer, which he is. He said, I want to do the best and biggest types of deals that are out there, which is buying companies. Your little transactions for your five to $10 million company, performing in sales, if you're a true salesperson, are nothing compared to doing deals of buying companies. It is the most seductive sales activity you can ever receive endorphins from. And what happens when you get to spend 80% of your time and you talk to 1,000 companies over a span of a few years? You then become so, so knowledgeable about the space that people are now going to you when they're selling their company and saying, how much is it worth? How do we do a deal? How do we make it work? And the problem that you have is, who knows about the debt market issue now? Who knows about banks? Who knows about the difficulty small businesses have in getting capital, other people's money to do deals? They, you're ignored by most traditional forms of support that exist. The only thing you have, especially when you're starting out, that you can control is your ability to negotiate a deal with someone else based upon the performance of that cash flow, based upon the future you're going to build together, and not by leverage buyouts from outside and other people's money, especially during times of economic uncertainty. Now, I asked you at the very, very beginning, who wants to do deals? So do me a favor. Stand up if you want to do a deal. Okay. Now look to your left. Look at the person next to you. Look to your right. There's deals in this room. It's not just for the big players. It's not just for the people who are deal makers. It's for you. So the next time we're at a networking event, the next time we're at a dinner party, and someone asks you, what's your superpower? M&A. &A. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Scaling Fastlane podcast. If you enjoy this content and are looking for a more immersive experience, join us at our next Scale at Speed live event. It's packed with dynamic content, expert insights, and a room full of like-minded agency leaders who are also on a scaling journey. Come join us in person. Visit scaleatspeedlive.com to secure your spot today. We can't wait to see you there.